Well, I am eager to be with you in the book of Exodus, again in this new year, chapter 21, if you would be turning there as we want to bring the book of the law of Moses. And if you're joining us, we have been working our way through this book of Exodus, and we're committed each week to look at God's Word, to read the text, to explain the text, to seek to give the sense and the the meaning of it, which has been a pattern from Old Testament times. And as Pastor Corey preached last week from 1 Peter 2, there's pure spiritual milk for us as we come to the Lord and His Word. And and this passage is going to help us really follow up with what he talked about last time, putting off malice and any hurtful speech or deeds and to taste and see that the Lord is good. To our bad world, God gave his good law to Israel as a good gift to correct injustice and to protect life, and we're going to see that today, and the principles of what we're going to read have application for us today. So as we keep preaching through Exodus, may the Lord keep speaking to us through his word. Look with me at Exodus 21 and verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time, as his time and work, and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. In other words, his investment and work time lost, but the master is not executed for the crime of battery. Verse 22, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, you shall pay. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This is God's Word, and this is an important principle of God's Word to speak to justice and the limits of of justice, and really the main point of this section is that we need to value life versus vengeance or violence. We need to value life and not be those marked by violence or vengeance. We're called to fight the good fight of faith, not to be fighting with one another. I trust this last week, none of you beat up a slave or I hope you didn't hit a pregnant woman so that she gave birth early. I hope you have not kidnapped or stolen anyone, 
recently, but I don't want you to sit back and relax if you've never done that or if you've never killed anyone because God sees heart sin too. And, and really the, the principles here speak to our hearts. Whether I curse outwardly or just hate or, or even want to hurt at times inwardly to God, it is evil and it is lethal. How we speak to or treat parents or the poor, which would be the, the slaves in that day, this is a deadly serious issue to God. And if we wound, we need to heal is another principle. We need to restore. And the altar that's spoken of here reminds us of mercy in the gospel, this side of the cross. We are not Old Testament Israel under its theocratic government, its civil and judicial system, but there are moral principles for us here today. Our scripture reading earlier says, love does no harm or wrong to its neighbor. And that kind of sums up this whole section of the law. I can almost hear R.C. Sproul writing on a chalkboard the Latin words. He loves to do that. Lex talionis, which is the, the principle that summarizes here, the, the principle of eye for eye justice. And it's a law that's actually intended to limit retaliation so that a any punishment would be consistent with the crime and would not exceed it, which tends to be man's temptation. Two weeks ago, we were in Galatians talking about how Christ redeems us who were under the law. And it says, God's adopted sons in Christ Jesus, led by the Spirit, are not under the law as Old Testament Israel was. We're not under the law's curse, specifically. We're not under its condemnation. We're not under its covenant under Moses. We're not under its circumcision requirements, ceremonies, special days, or even the civil legal system in our government. Paul will also say in Galatians, we're not under a law of legalism, but we are under a law of love. That we are obligated and called to, and love summarizes this. This shows us, gives examples of what love for neighbor specifically looks like, principles, categories. Galatians, the same book, says we need to fulfill the law of Christ through Christ. Thinking of what Christ taught, which is where we're going to get. All Old Testament law is fulfilled by this concept of love, Galatians says more than once. And it says all of the Old Testament law is a tutor or a guardian or a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. And so I want to look at this next section of the law with that understanding from the inspired New Testament as to how we can love the Lord and love our neighbor and how this section ultimately should lead us to Christ. And so for our outline, I'll ask the guys if you can pull this up, we want to consider the principles value and honor all life in God's image. Violence or abuse brings God's judgment and then vengeance is not ours. And we need to look to God's Son in all that. First, value and honor life in God's image. This is one of the first principles God gave back in Genesis. The, the book before this, the context is 2,000 years before he gave the law to Moses. God told Noah and the new world after the flood this in Genesis 9, verse 5. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from man, from his fellow man. I will require a reckoning 
for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, his blood shall be shed for God made man in his own image. And this is what's unique about the biblical worldview. This part of it, God made man in his own image. This is why we value life. This is why this is so important. That's part of God's covenant grace and, and promise to the end to not wipe out life by the flood. The, every time you see a rainbow, we've seen rain around us here and the, the change of the seasons and all that is the context of when he gives this, that he's going to faithfully continue all of that. But we need to not take the blood of man. So this, is, this principle is bigger than Israel. It's before Mount Sinai. It's beyond that as well. This concept of murderers and the death penalty. Jesus also said those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Romans 13 says the state bears the sword. It's not our place as individuals, but governing authorities bear that sword. And James 3 verse 9 says we're not even to curse our fellow man because it says they are made in the image or likeness of God. It was not just physical acts. It's how we think of and speak of others who are made in God's image. We need to continually remind ourselves of this. That's the broader context of Exodus 20, verse 12, when it says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, I will appoint for you a place in which he may flee. And he's speaking of the, the altar in those days, which was the place of mercy and refuge when there was what we would call maybe accidental or involuntary manslaughter, something that the Lord let happen. But it wasn't an intentional, like verse 14, but if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, we would call this premeditated murder, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. We've talked about that before in, in verses 15 through 17 in our series through chapter 20, Thinking of the commandments, honor parents, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, and you're not to steal a fellow human being. That's the worst kind. That's the one stealing where there's the death penalty applied. Other stealing you could restore, but to steal a human being was the death penalty. In verses 12 through 14 are, are capital punishment for violations of the Ten Commandments, but they're also, I think, corrections of what has been going on in Genesis. So in Genesis 4, Cain lay in wait for Abel and he willfully attacked him and killed him by cunning as he talks to his brother, hey, let's go out in the field and he brutally kills his own brother. And then in that same chapter, Genesis 4, 22, it says, Lamech said to his wives, just stop there, that, that's his first problem, wives, not a good start in the verse, but it gets worse. Here's what he's bragging to his wives. I have killed a man for wounding me. I have killed a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is 77-fold. This is where we are in the generations right after the fall into sin, and then violence was great on the earth in chapter 6. And in there, it's not wound for wound. It's if someone wounds me, I kill him. And even if a, a young guy comes and wants to take me out and strike me, I'm going to strike him dead. God's law and order will not allow 
gangsters like Lamech. In fact, some have said his bragging, his killing sounds like the first gangster rap. But it gets worse in Genesis chapter 34, Jacob's boys, the sons of Israel, the the fathers of the 12 tribes, they murdered the Shechemites also by cunning and in revenge for what they did with their, with their sister. And they tell them, hey, you, you know, we can do a wedding, but you guys all need to get circumcised first before the wedding. And then they wait until the men lie in their recovery from that operation, and they strike all of them dead for defiling their sister. That's Genesis chapter 34. These are the sort of things in the background of, of the family of faith, their forefathers, that God's law is correcting. That cannot be among God's people. You cannot let things like that continue. You cannot multiply vengeance like that. And so this is important to think about because some people will think God's law is harsh or cruel when they, when they read things like life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But you need to understand the context in their world and also in much of ours today is to want to make pay far greater than what they did to you originally to get back. Sean Connery played Jim Malone in church talking to Kevin Costner, Elliot Ness about justice in the untouchables. And here's how he says it. Here's how you need to deal with justice He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send him to the morgue. I'm not going to try to do his his accent, but he says that's the Chicago way. That's the world's way. That's the world's way, but it's not God's way. God's ways are not man's ways. Lamech wanted revenge 77-fold. Even a, a lad strikes him, and he strikes him dead it's not wound for wound. He's, he's basically saying, you insult me. People do this all around the world. When there's an insult to their family, there's honor killings where they go after their whole family. You, taught, you took off my hand. Some people would say, I'm going to take off your head. And God says, no, hand for hand, not head. And instead of justice for the one life, the person who had dishonored and assaulted Dinah, Israel took all of the Shechemites lives, basically committed genocide. And the end of verse 22 here talks about judges who need to be involved. So the punishment fits the crime and doesn't exceed the crime. This is about judges is the context. This is not about justice vigilante style. And it's only one life for one life in verse 23. So Exodus 21 is actually correcting their cruel world. It's it's bringing restraint to their harsh world and ways. And it's also saying that Israel's forefathers deserved to die. Their forefathers should have died. And and not only that, Jacob's sons also captured and sold their brother, stole him and sold him as a slave. Remember that in Exodus 37, what they did, God is saying here, that deserved death. What the, the fathers of the 12 tribes, the 12 tribes themselves should have not even been in existence for their sin, although God was gracious, but it's the same word from the seventh commandment, you shall not steal. The worst kind of stealing is man-stealing or slave trading. All, according to this verse 16, 
Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So that would be any involved in the African slave trade, stealing, selling, or owning those who would come through that system were to die in God's law because of the value and honor of all life in God's image. Human beings are not like property. They're not like like animals. In chapter 22, you steal those. You repay up to four times or five times if you steal an animal. But in chapter 21, verse 16, you steal a slave. You pay by your life because that life is in God's image. Now, Israel had temporary, we've talked about this before, voluntary servitude to pay off debts. That's the context of that word, up to six years. Sometimes if the debt was big, they would work in that way. But if you were to kill someone in that situation of life, in verse 20, you die. What God values and what God honors is often different than man's law. The ancient Hammurabi's Code, how many of you heard of the Hammurabi's Code in in school? There was a law against stealing or selling a human being or kidnapping, but it only applied to if they were in a higher upper class than you. There there were laws that would allow, in some cases, you to kill those of the lower class with immunity. Here's what the Old Testament scholar John Currid writes, Scripture has a broader application. Any person The Bible does not discriminate regarding the heinousness of this crime. The death penalty for kidnapping reflects the biblical teaching of the value, worth, and dignity of man in God's image. It is appropriate punishment because kidnapping, or you could say slave trading also, is an assault or trafficking today. It's an assault on the concept of the person created in the image of God. And in verse 20 executing masters who would beat a slave to death. He says, these laws protecting slaves in Israel are unique in the entire ancient Near East. They represent a profound and startling advance upon all those other cultures, all these other laws, all these other documents we have written in the time. God's law is in a whole different category because it's God's word and not man's. Civil rights to all Verse 20, slave or free and females care to protect the elderly and the vulnerable and the most vulnerable, the unborn in verse 22. And the law would later require in all things uh, principles of equity like two or three witnesses. There needed to be a fair trial to investigate the principles of this chapter. There could be no partiality for higher society or those in poverty. There was no discrimination by ethnicity. We'll see that in a couple of messages. But Romans 13 says, Governing authorities and law enforcement bear the sword of deadly force and to let men brutally take lives of others but keep their own life actually devalues and dishonors Life, we need to, number one, value and honor all life in God's image. Now, number two, violence or abuse brings God's judgment. Verse 15, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. That's the same verb in verse 12 for striking down to die. It's the verb that Moses 
used earlier for striking down the Egyptian to death. So this, this is not a, when you say strike, don't think of a boy who's wrestling dad and they're having fun, but it gets a little rough and he strikes him. This is violence or abuse. And it's implied it's, it's someone who's even stronger at a stage of life than their parents. It's potentially deadly. And this is an assault on the family. The very fabric of society was so serious that it was a capital crime in Israel. Ancient patriarchal laws focused on the father. But another thing striking in God's law is he's especially and repeatedly and equally highlighting mothers to God gave special protections for, for women and for pregnant women in verse 22 and for abused wives back in verse 10. If a man neglected essentials and abandoned her for another, verses 10 through 11, say she could go free. She didn't have to stay in certain oppressive situations. And then this is speaking of verse 17, parents, whoever curses his father or his mother, and, and we've seen that in the Ten Commandments and throughout, his father or his mother shall be put to death. This is another strong term for verbal abuse. This is murdering with words, we might say. This is the very people who gave you life and to attack them physically or, or verbally in such a harsh way, you're, it's ultimately God who gave you life through them that this is against and is so serious. The fifth commandment is honor your father and mother so that it will go well with you, so that you will enjoy long life on the earth. The first commandment with the promise to curse or verbally wish your parents were dead could mean you would be dead in God's law. As this verb goes beyond dishonoring, disrespect, to actually disowning words. It's, it's like you're denouncing them. And God is deadly serious about you honoring parents, including later in life as well, not just when you're in the home, honoring parents and how you speak to them, how you speak of them, how you treat them. Even if our government doesn't judge it like Israel does, our God sees this as a very serious thing. And there was a process in Deuteronomy 21 where parents would lovingly discipline first, but if there was stubborn and severe dishonor, they could bring it to the elders. It says, a consistently disobedient, stubborn, rebellious one who was a, a drunkard or, or guilty of other serious rebellion like that could be examined and, and could be executed. And Deuteronomy 21, verse 21 says, death in those severe cases was, quote, so you shall purge the evil person from your midst. As New Testament churches, we're not the state of Israel. But that principle there, even of verbally abusive homes, can ask the church and its elders for help. And, and you should when things get, get bad and even not wait till they get so bad. There is loving discipline needed in families and in church families. And there are times where we need to involve law enforcement, family, as well. Strikers or revilers today, we don't put to death, but stubborn sinners can be put out of the church. First Corinthians 5.11 tells us not to associate as Christian fellowship with unrepentant sinners, and it includes some of these descriptors. 
a reviler, a drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And then verse 13 quotes the law of Moses, so you shall purge the evil person from among you. So for Old Testament Israel, purge the evil person among you was code for capital punishment. For the New Testament church, it is applied to separation at times with a hope of restoration to fellowship. And it's showing us that parent-child relations are critical and, and God calls aging parents or parents to the end to be protected. Violence or abuse in a home is a deadly evil. So parents here, children here, if you have in any way, even with your words, been evil, repent of that. Resolve to seek God's ways, to seek help from believers and from the church if you need it. And to deal with the anger in your heart. And, and this is what can happen in verse 18 when you don't deal with anger in your heart towards another. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist. And the implication here is this, he's not trying to, to kill him, but things have gotten out of hand in, in anger that hasn't been restrained. The man does not die but takes to his bed. Then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. What that means is clear of the death penalty in the verses before. But he's not clear of penalty or payment. He shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. Philip Riken explains it this way. People who injure others should provide their victims with some form of compensation. They should pay for what they have done. In verse 21, by compensating the victim for his loss of income and by making sure that he received adequate medical care and to take care, in our day we would say, of his medical bills and, and needs, this law is also a reminder to not resort to violence. Arguments have a way of escalating, and once we get angry, there's no telling what we would do. And maybe for a lot of you, it's, there's no telling what you might say, even if you don't physically do something, you can damage and hurt greatly with your words. But we're never justified in doing that, using force to settle a personal dispute. There is a place for force for governing authorities, but that's not our place. And this principle applies to verbally striking back as well. When you wound, you need to heal. If you even think you've wounded someone, you need to go and make sure things are okay. Proverbs 12, 18 says this, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. You ever hear the phrase cutting remarks? That's one of the translations. There's, we can do that with our words. It's like our words are weapons, our words wound. But then it says this, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. I love that contrast. Our words can can wound like a, like a weapon. It's like we, we grabbed a weapon in our hand and we're striking them, but it says the tongue of the wise can bring healing. God calls us to be wise, to be gracious, to, to seek with our words how we can heal. Some of you verbally jab. Some of you speak harshly, sharply. When you do that, you need to ask forgiveness and, and seek to heal 
the one you've hurt. Don't just say that's how I am. God wants you to be the way his son is. And we can ask the help of God who, the psalm says, heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. We can be more like him, seeking to heal wounded hearts, seeking to bind up wounds. And verse 20 describes a scenario when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. The Bible isn't saying you should do this. The Bible is saying you should, when someone does that, this is what you should do. And, and remember the context, or it's good to know the context, of other ancient societies who often literally let masters get away with murder. That was not uncommon. It was, it was not uncommon even in the society they had all grown up in and, and came out of. Remember, there's the man being beaten by his slave master. It's, it's the same word that's being used here and maybe was going to be beaten to death and there would have been no legal penalty probably for that slave master to knock off another one of those Hebrew slaves. But God's law says it cannot be that way. To fatally wound a slave, even if you didn't mean to, to kill him, you would lose your life in that way. And it would, injuring one would mean loss of money. In, in verse 21, masters were only to be killed and avenged if they killed, but they would pay by loss of work if they hurt. They, they had a, even in this indentured servitude, temporary people contracting to work for you, you have a vested interest and in, in an investment in your workers. To disable one of them is actually shooting yourself in the foot in addition to being wrong how you would hurt him in that way in God's image. In God's law, to seriously abuse a slave meant you lose a slave. Look at verse 26. Verse 26, when a man strikes the eye of a slave, male or female, again, it keeps highlighting not just the men but the women, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. So whether it's a, a huge, major life-altering thing or even a, a thing like losing your tooth, I, I'd rather lose a tooth than an eye. But either way, he was to be free because that kind of abuse was not to be tolerated. Riken again says, A master did not have the right to injure his slave in any way. Whether the injury was as serious as losing an eye or as minor as losing a tooth, the slave was set free. This was a major difference, again, between slavery in Israel and everywhere else where they had indentured servitude systems. If a master so much as knocked out a tooth, they would be set free, that the one that he, that he injured, the master had failed in his God-given duty to protect his servants. So he's released from his servitude, and this law was intended to eradicate any physical Abuse, and it spoke earlier of abuse of, of wives as well. This was an unparalleled law in the ancient patriarchal world. We know of no other, people who've studied this can't find any other statute from the ancient world that has anything like this in protecting even the lowest of workers. But this law is in the Bible because everyone is made, every human being is made in the image of God and has a right to his fatherly care. And we need to reflect that. He's saying to this world, we need to value God's image versus violence that God judges. And then number three, vengeance. 
is not ours. We need to look to God's Son. And I want you just to look at verse 22. And we'll just begin to look at this section next week that we'll look at next time. When men strive together and and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. This is even just being reckless, even though there wasn't any harm to the mom or the child. But if there is harm, and it's general, not saying just to the mom, but we could say to mom or child, then... You shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And he's talking about the context of including even the littlest of and most vulnerable of life. And we're going to look next week at valuing and honoring life in the womb. There's a lot here to consider about the importance of how God is protecting unborn life. Part of the life for life principle in God's law is addressing harming unborn life. But I want you just to notice this week that vengeance, even for recklessness or, or harm, did not belong to the husband. It was up to the judge. The husband could press charges, but it was the judges who would determine the consequences. And verse 20 uses the word avenged, but the avenger was someone else. When, when he kills a slave, he, he's beating him and maybe he doesn't even mean to, but he kills him. There's vengeance that comes because he should have never been beating and abusing in that way. Clearly the one who died is not bringing the vengeance. There's someone else who's coming to avenge, and this became a technical term for their legal system, the one who would bear the sword and not in vain of law enforcement. This is not about personal vengeance. The context is the judicial system executing justice. This is important, and it must be measure for measure justice. And, and there needed to be judges. There needed to be a, 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 a consideration to make sure the fine matched the crime and didn't exceed it. This is not about interpersonal revenge. This isn't saying if, if someone injures your eye, then you get to injure their eye. That's, that's not how this was applied. In fact, in verse 26 through 27, when a slave would lose his eye or his tooth, the law doesn't say then he goes and does that to the master. The law says he goes free. That was such a serious thing to abuse the, the poor and, and those who are in their poverty and debt having to serve you to, to beat them in that way, the, the penalty equivalent for that is you actually lose them and, and forfeit the right to even be in that relationship because of that. This is not a crass, physical getting back and getting even. That's not what this lex talionis or this law is. It is a principle of equitable justice and compensation, equal scales, and you need to be balanced justice. Vengeance is God's call by governing authorities. It's not something that belongs to us. God would say later in this same law, these famous words, vengeance is mine and recompense. Even as he needs to set up laws to protect people, he wants to make clear vengeance is my call. It's not your call. And here's what we read earlier, what Seth read earlier, Romans 12, 17. Repay no one evil for evil. 
but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. That's not a new concept in the New Testament. He's really reiterating the principle of Exodus. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? With good. And then, right after that, he says we need to be in subjection to the governing Authority. So that interpersonal thing is not the only extent. There are times where we need governing authorities to be involved. And verse 4 says that the governing authority is actually the avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer when there's crimes. And then verse 9 actually quotes Exodus. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. Or any other commandment is summed up in this one word. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong or no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And then to do that, the chapter ends with these words, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We need the Lord Jesus Christ in all this. We need to put him on. We need to look to him, to God's son, It's actually him who is the judge of all the earth, who will do right, and who will make right all wrongs. We can't do that. We're not God. We can't do all of that, but he will, and he actually determined the fine. He determined the wages and the payment that we deserve. He actually came for all who would believe, and he paid in full for all of their sins. He is the ultimate avenger in the end. And he also can rescue his people from their desires for revenge. He not only is going to make things right in the end, he can make things right in your heart between you and other people. He can burn away some of those hurts of people who have burned you. There's scars some of you have on your souls from your past, but we need to look to Christ, look to his nail-scarred hands that even in glory he can still show us that he has is, he is suffered, he has paid in full for all the sins of all who would believe. And Paul says the, the law is our tutor to point us to Christ. And so how does, how does this very passage and the, the principles we're looking at point us to Christ? Well, well, think of how Christ came and he loved like a father. He even spoke to his disciples as dear children. He spoke to women often as, as daughter. He loved as a father, but he was cursed by his own, by the children of Israel. They disowned him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him, and they disowned him. Jesus, when it comes to the end, he is beaten. He is struck by fists. He is struck by objects. He suffered injustice. He he suffered violence and abuse more than, than any of us have. They were hurling continually abusive words at him on the cross, but there was no violence found in him, in his mouth. He opened not his mouth. Think of, think of Christ on the cross. He, he could have forced them. He had the, the 
12 legions of angels who could have come. He could have forced them to pay for injuring him. But what is he doing on the cross? He's crying out, Father, forgive them. This is our, our Savior who was actually sold, by, sold at the price of a slave by murderers. And there were men who had been lying in, in wait. And, and by cunning is the language of the Gospels. They were trying to trap him and, and take him away. And they actually beat him with rods to the point of near death like a slave would be beaten. And yet he took no personal vengeance. He, he died on a cross. That was the death of a slave. A Roman citizen would not die on the cross. A slave and, and those who rebelled against the, the government would die, and that's the way he died. The, the most serious capital offense is what he is accused of. They treat him as a slave. They beat him so bad that he cannot even walk. Simon the Cyrene has to lift up the cross and carry it to him while he is on the way to go to pay for those very kinds of sins. The law said hand for hand. Think of his hands crucified for the, the deeds that you have done. When it says foot for foot, think of his feet being nailed to the cross for the sins that, that you and I have walked in and that we are tempted in, and even this year maybe are still continuing to walk in those sins. Look to Christ on the cross. Wound for wound, the, the scripture says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was wounded for our transgressions, that we deserve the punishment that I deserve fell on him. Stripe for stripe is what the law says, but the gospel says, by his stripes we are what? We're healed, and thoroughly healed was the language of the law. Jesus can heal us in every way thoroughly from everything that has happened in the past, physical, spiritual, and emotional. There is healing in Christ. Praise the Lord. The law spoke of the man struck down if he rises again. We know that Jesus, when he was struck down, did rise again for lawbreakers like you and me. And so, friend, if you're guilty... Flee to refuge in the cross. Come as if thinking of the cross as the altar that we grab hold on, as Hebrews says, as our only hope of salvation is what Jesus has done for us. The wages of all sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Turn from your sin. Trust the Savior. If you've cursed, if you've, if you've hurt others with your words, Confess that and heal that relationship. By God's grace, seek to heal it. If you have a problem with anger, don't let it get out of control. Get help because that sin can and will cost you greatly. Even if the consequences in our world today look differently, there is always a great cost for the heart sins of this chapter. And above all, we need to value life in God's image, instead of violence or vengeance. And we need to close in Matthew 5, because this is where Jesus actually quoted from Exodus 21 and this lex talionis, a principle, and he actually clarified how to apply the Old Testament law. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law, and, and part of what he's doing there is actually filling full the law as well, helping them see it was deeper and more than they thought, and it was to be applied differently than they thought. Matthew 5, 21, they had heard it taught in a limited way. Matthew 5, 21, you have heard 
that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, he's not correcting that, he's, he's, he's expanding it and really I think what, what Moses understood, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother shall be liable to the cancel, council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. See, we're all in trouble, not just those of us who have done the most egregious physical acts. And then in verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And we know the, the rabbis and, and others have taught, you know, that, that means if, if someone hits you, you got to stand up for yourself, hit them back, get them back, fight for your rights. It's biblical. But Jesus wants to clarify that interpersonally, verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. The context here is not police authorities who use force. This is talking about personal insults or even the context of persecuted believers. For the sake of the gospel, Jesus is not forbidding international warfare by nations, but he is talking about interpersonal conflict. And here's what it needs to look like in verse 43. For us, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, and he's going to expand on it now, love your enemies. So don't just love your neighbor, whoever you think that is. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God has been doing that already this year. He's been sending rain on a land that does not dis deserve any grace. He's been sending rain on neighbors around you who are guilty of all kinds of sins. He's been sending rain on you. He's been sending rain on this land. He's making the sun still rise every day. I know the earth actually rotates, but that's the way we speak. Every new day of life, there's mercies that are new every morning because of his common grace and goodness. And if we know the Father, if, he, if we are sons of him, we need to reflect that grace and love and kindness, specifically even to people of society that would see us as enemies or treat us as their enemies. May God help us as much as is possible, as far as it depends on us, to live at peace in our homes with those we work with. And if we recognize ways we've been relating to and treating others we work with or live with or interact with are not right, seek to make that right. Ask forgiveness and ask for God's grace. And let's ask him now in prayer. Our Father, I thank you for your grace, your kindness, your mercy. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to have more of your compassion. And Lord, we do thank you that we, even though our land has many problems, Lord, we have law enforcement and authorities and civil servants, people who protect and serve, who are seeking to do their best to live out principles that in many ways do, do relate to your word. And even those who don't know them, Lord, your word says they are your servants to 
represent you and justice in that way, but I, I pray in our own hearts and our relationships and things that are not crimes, but things that, that where love can cover a multitude of sins. Lord, I help us to love our neighbors more and better. And where we haven't, Lord, I pray that you would help us to make that right by your grace and for your glory, we pray. Amen.